I read a blue question, uh, blue question last week. I'll read it to you. It says, please explain further rested from his works as God did from his. You said that our resting from works was a cessation from a life of works to obtain salvation as we come into the rest offered by Jesus by faith. How does this, uh, can this align to God resting from his works? He rested from his honourable creative work. Surely we are coming to rest from our honourable work in his service in furthering the gospel when we finally enter his kingdom. So the question is based around uh, a verse that we uh, read last week, um, which is there in chapter 4. And uh, uh, it's there in chapter 4 and verse uh, verse 9. Uh, no, 10. 10. There we go. It starts in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his so I mentioned last week that there were three possibilities for that, that verse, three possible meanings. One is this idea of uh, God uh, resting from his works, therefore we rest from our works in heaven. Uh, so we work in this life uh, and then we rest in the life to come. So if you think about the application of that is you work really hard now, looking forward to a rest then. The second possibility was the idea that this is actually talking about Jesus so when it says uh, for whoever, it's, it's for the one, literally the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. So it could be talking about Jesus going to heaven and resting from, uh, from his works there. That's definitely a theme later in Hebrews. The one that I went with was the idea of God um, telling us that actually there, there is rest now uh, from our works in, the ter- in terms of our works to make us righteous before God. And I want to say that all three of those have sort of issues when you then compare it to uh, the reasoning. So it says, as God rested from his works. Well, what works did God rest from? Well, God rested from his creative works. But are we to say that on the seventh day he he did no good? Did he he stop working in the sense of uh, he was no longer sustaining the universe? Well, no. Uh, It's his creative works that he, he rests from. So that poses a problem for all three of those, uh, of those things, because none of us rest from our works in creating the universe, um, whatever rest you think that we, we have there. Um, I think it's more likely that it's the resting from our works for righteousness, because that's a big issue for the people that the author is writing to. That's what they're tempted back into. And as it talks about works, that, that's what it seems that he wants them to rest from. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the stake over it. There are a lot of good commentators um, that, that talk about the fact that it could be us working now and resting then. Uh, but all the older ones, uh, like Calvin and Luther, they saw this as resting uh, from our works. So in that sense, actually, we, we rest now. So we do work hard, don't we, for the kingdom, but there is a rest that is available now. The last thing that, that points me to that is the tenses. So whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. So it's a past tense thing. It seems to imply that that has already happened. Has rested, um, has entered God's rest. So for that reason, I, I, I'd, I'd go towards the other. But I wouldn't, um, yeah, it's not one that I would say this is absolutely, definitely, certainly what it means. Because there are good, solid Christians who would disagree on exactly what this verse means. If you have any comeback on that, do write me another question on a blue slip or come and speak to me afterwards. Uh, and do feel free, if you have any questions this morning, to write them on a blue slip, put them in the, the wooden box 
at the back. But to our passage this morning. When I first uh, worked in an office a few years back, I entered a department in crisis. Uh, a lot of you will know what workplace politics is like. Well, this was workplace warfare. Uh, the employees, they hated their new boss, absolutely hated. Some of the things they said about this woman were, were quite shocking. And the new boss, I think it's fair to say, despised the people uh, who worked in the office. She brought in people from her old workplace to work in the office. And the office workers that I was working with were convinced that she placed them there to spy on us. So, it's honestly true. So, we, we, you know, when I got into the office, I said, you know, you've got to be careful what you say around so-and-so because they'll just report it straight back to the boss. So you can imagine the office was very tense. You had to be careful what you said to whom and you never knew who quite was listening in and who was on which side. And when I got there, the situation was already so bad that the company had paid for a professional mediator to come in and mediate the situation between the boss and the employees. And the idea was that this man came in and he listened to both sides. He acted on behalf of the employees to the boss and on behalf of the boss to the employees. People were taken aside during work time and interviewed so that he could hear all sides of the story. He organised meetings between the boss and the employees so they could talk about their differences. He was to act as a go-between. Now, I wish I could say that it ended well in my office. It didn't. The staff perceived that he was biased towards the boss. He was always defending the boss. And as soon as the mediation period was over, the boss fired the main representative of the people in the office. So our mediator, I think it's fair to say, was was a bit rubbish, uh, really, when it comes to mediators. Now, I doubt if there's many of us that have been through an official mediation process. Or have we? The Bible does sometimes use the word mediator, but more often it uses the word priest. And the idea is very similar. One who stands before the people for God, and one who stands before God for the people. There were priests in the Old Testament. But as we've been seeing in Hebrews, the author has been showing us that Jesus offers us something greater than everything we have in the Old Testament. The readers were being tempted back into Old Testament religion. And the author has written the book of Hebrews to exhort them to hold on to Christ because he is so much greater than anything this world can offer. Now as we reach our passage this morning, he's already compared him to angels who brought the law, Moses who led the people out of Egypt, and Joshua who led the people into the rest in the promised land. And now he turns his focus to Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of the wilderness years. The wilderness years that we have been compared to in these very passages. Aaron was allowed to approach God once a year on the Day of Atonement, when purification for sins was made. That was the one time in the year he could go near to the altar of God. And as you read the the Old Testament passages, you see he went in great fear and trepidation. They attached bells to his feet just in case he died while he was in there. So they could always hear him sort of moving around, a bit like a Morris dancer, but probably <laughs> for a slightly different. But <laughs> you could hear the bells going as he walked through. The idea was that if he stopped, well, the bells would stop and you knew that he had died. You've got the incense that was uh, to be set before the throne, before he could go in, almost like a smoke screen, so that he was protected in there. He went in with great fear and trepidation. 
Yet here in our passage this morning, we are called to approach the throne of grace. Us, not the high priest. Not in fear, but with confidence. We're to hold on to Christ this morning and our confession, because what he offers is so much better than what Aaron, even Aaron, the high priest, could offer. So there are two points this morning. Uh, hold on uh, with courage, and then later on draw near with confidence. So first of all, hold on with courage. Let me read you those verses again uh, in chapter uh, chapter five. Uh, sorry, chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who is in every one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What he's saying there is that we are to hold fast. We've seen this idea through the last few weeks, haven't we? We're to cling on to. It's a very active word. So I've put a verse there on the back of your notice sheet, Matthew 12, verse 11. This is Jesus talking. He said, he said to them, which of you, when he has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? It's that sort of active idea of holding on to something and, and not letting go. What are we to hold on to? Well, we're to hold on to our confession. Uh, do you see that there in uh, verse 14? Let us hold fast our confession. Now, most of the week, as I've been preparing this passage, I've had penciled in, hold on to Christ uh, as this heading. But that's not what it says, is it? It says confession. Hold on to your confession. Now, confession is something verbal, isn't it? The Greek word is homo logos. We know both those words probably. Same word, a word that's shared together. It's a verbal thing that they share as a community. That's why we have, don't we, confessions of faith. We were looking at a confession earlier, really, the Apostles' Creed. Things that we say together. There's a hold on, if you like, to their faith. What they, they express as their faith, we would probably put it today. There's a hold on to what they believe. So it is to hold on to Christ. But it's a bit broader than that. It's the whole thing. It's not as if they can let go of bits of it and just cling on to Jesus. They're to hold on to the whole thing. It's a bit like saying that their faith should be like uh, their teddy bear. Now, bear with me a moment, if you will. But I don't know if you've noticed, after any children go missing or if there's ever sort of disasters, you always see that child, don't you, clinging on to their teddy bear. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. Maybe you'll, you'll spot it in months to come. But there's always, they've always got their teddy bear, haven't they? They've left everything. They've lost their parents, perhaps. They've lost their house. They've lost their family. But they've clung on to their teddy bear. They've, they've got it holding on uh, to it. What he's saying here is what you confess, what you believe, hang on to it. Whatever else you let go, when you're found, even when disaster happens, cling on to it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Whatever else you let fall, don't let your faith fall. And we know that these people were tempted to do that. They were tempted to, to let go of what they believed. And they're given two reasons to hold on to their faith. They're given two reasons to hold on with courage. And both of them are related to Christ. After all, we've already read, he is the high priest of our confession. That was 3 verse 1. And there's two things we learn about him really as high priests, just in these verses. The first one that we learn is that he was here. 
He was here. It says to me that he passed through the heavens. That's in verse 14. I don't know if you've read that and just sort of gone, okay, yeah, it means he's in heaven. But the phrase isn't in heaven. It's passed through heaven. The picture really is going through the heavens, going up. The picture really is the ascension. It's saying he's gone from the earth to heaven. And we've already seen that's a big theme in Hebrews. But what it's saying, therefore, is that not just that he is in heaven, which is wonderful, but that he was here. He's ascended to heaven. He's gone from the earth to be with God. So therefore, says the author, he's able to show mercy. He's able to sympathise with us. Why? Because he's walked in our shoes. He's been where we've been. He's walked on this earth. It's not just that he is in heaven. It's that he was on earth. Now, if I was writing this, I would probably write this with judgment in mind. This is how we normally use this sort of argument, isn't it? You know, well, I've been there. I've done that. I didn't sin. Therefore, you're doubly accountable. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, when I tried it, it worked. Sort of implying that when you try it, it should work. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say, I've been there, done that, therefore you're judged. Actually, he says, I've been there, done that, I know how hard it is. I can sympathise with you. Jesus can say as our high priest, I know what it's like when you're tired. I understand what it's like when people annoy or betray you. I understand what it means to be tempted to go back. Because I've been there. I've walked this earth. I've been tempted in every way. It says there in verse 15. So he's able to sympathise with our weakness. And that was part of the qualification of a high priest. If you uh, look down to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. It said he can deal gently with the ignorance and wayward. Since he himself is beset with weaknesses. But because, uh, because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin. Just as he does for the sin of the people. So that's talking there about a human high priest. But part of his qualification was that he was able to sympathise with his people. Jesus had our frailties as a human being. Jesus had our temptations. So he's able to deal with us gently. Not harshly, but gently. Why is this a reason to hold on to our faith in Jesus? Well, it means that no one shows mercy like Jesus shows mercy. No one is able to sympathise as Jesus is. So think about it. If you serve money, well, when... Your look is down, it's merciless, isn't it? You lose everything. If you serve fame, but when you've passed your prime, that's it, isn't it? You could list off celebrities who have now disappeared off the scene. If you serve the Old Testament law, it is merciless. So this is what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what they were tempted back to, this law that showed no mercy. But whatever you're tempted back into, it can never show mercy like Jesus shows mercy. It will take courage to hold on to it. It won't be easy to hold on to your faith in difficulty. But when we fail, Jesus can show us mercy. He's been there. He can sympathise. He was here. 
But the second thing we see about him as high priest in these two verses is that he is there. So he was here and he is there. It's all right being sympathetic, isn't it? But that does no good to our human condition. As someone once said, we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. We've offended our creator. Sympathy is good, but it doesn't solve our problem. But we see here that he's now in heaven. He's he's passed through the heavens into heaven and is at God's right hand. He's called here the son of God, that position of authority. So he's not just able to be sympathetic, but he's able to grant mercy. Not just be merciful, if you like, but actually grant mercy. To grant pardon. See, I can give you a bit of sympathy. I'm frail, I'm weak, but I can't give you mercy. I can't grant you pardon. And there is no higher court. That's what we see with Jesus. He is there in the heavens, the Son of God. So there's no one going to overrule him. If Jesus grants you mercy, if Jesus grants you pardon, then you're pardoned indeed. Moses couldn't grant that. Joshua couldn't grant that. Even Aaron couldn't pardon you in the way that Jesus does. So why would you want to turn away from your faith in him? Well, it's often, isn't it, that we forget his power. We forget his mercy. We imagine, don't we, sometimes that our sin is too much for him. We imagine that we've gone beyond the boundaries of his mercy. But there are no boundaries of his mercy. He's been here. So our sin should surprise him. He's lived among men and women. He's not surprised by sin. Wherever we've been, whatever we've done, Christ can show us mercy. And that's whether we did that before we became a Christian or after we became a Christian. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're looking into things, Christ can show you mercy. He can offer you forgiveness, whatever you've done. If you're a Christian here this morning, well, remember that whatever you have done in your Christian life, God still shows mercy through Christ. He's still able to pardon us because he is the highest court and he offers us mercy. So why would you want to turn away from him? And again, it will be hard in this world as we live out uh, our existence following Christ. But he is there in heaven with us, able to act, able to forgive, willing to forgive. So we need to hold on with courage because he is our great high priest able to sympathise and powerful to act. The second thing that we see is that we're to draw near with confidence. This takes up the bulk of our passage. I'll read it to us again, 4.16 to the end. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learnt obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here we're called to draw near. You see that there in verse 16? Let us draw near with confidence. But how are we to draw near to God? Have you ever wondered that? It says to draw near, but what does that really mean? Well, there are lots of different ways, aren't there, that people think that they draw near to God. Now, I'm going to tell you, to start with, the answer is Jesus. That's, that's where we're going, because you're going to assume that all the way through anyway and wait for that. But we're very good at finding other ways, aren't we? Even as Christians, um, certainly in the broader sense of, of the word, we find other ways to God. So think about it. Mary. Mary's a way people try and draw near to God. Uh, Caroline and I had Radio 2 on this morning. We had the Beatles, you know, let it be. Uh, when I find myself in trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. The idea is you come through Mary. God is holy. That includes Jesus, which is right. And they say, well, we cannot approach a holy God. We need a mediator. But for Catholics, the mediator is Mary. Mary's the one that gets us in with Jesus. Jesus then gets us in with God the Father. That's the sort of idea in Catholicism. Now, Mary is good, blessed among women, but she won't get you to God. So Mary's the way some, some people try to get to God. Mystical practices. It's getting slightly closer, though some of them have been a bit crazier over the years. Uh, for example, you could stand on a pillar for 33 years to get closer to God. Somebody actually did that. Uh, you can pull a plough on your back. Uh, that was St. David, sorry to uh, the Welsh here this morning. Um, that's what he did, he thought that got him closer to God, to not use horses or whatever, the oxen, um, just pull it himself. Going and living in some deserted place, like Lancashire. <laughs> not really, but going to live in the desert. There were real people who actually did this in the name of drawing near to God. People who had named the name of Christ. This isn't totally crazy out of... Uh, you know, other religions somewhere else, they would have called themselves Christians. Now, I wouldn't recommend any of those, especially Lancashire. <laughs> they won't get you to God. They won't bring you near to God. But we, there are some things that are a bit closer to our circles. Music. These all begin with M, by the way. Mary, not Mary, not mystical practices. But it's not music either. And this is much closer to where we get muddled. There's the idea, isn't there, that we come into God's presence as we worship. So you've got songs, uh, this is just a selection that just I googled. You know, this is a song you can sing. We come into your presence to sing a song to you. As I come into your presence, pass through your gates of praise, into your sanctuary till we're standing face to face. I look upon your countenance, I see the fullness of your grace. I could only bow and say, you are awesome in this place, mighty God. There are lots of other different songs, that's just one song. The idea of coming into God's presence by singing, being brought near to God. And it's a bit strange when you stop and think about it that way. We're brought near to God as we sing. Where's that in the Bible? Now again, singing is good. But if it becomes how we get to God, 
then the emphasis falls back on works. Not normally how we'd consider them. You wouldn't normally think of singing as a work, would you? But, you know, the more you praise, the closer you can get. The more you can lose yourself in the song, the more pleased God is with you. And then you end up with this position where the worship leader, their role is to bring you into God's presence. But actually, we see in our passage, that's Jesus' job to bring us into God's presence. So it's not through music. Music is good. We are commanded to sing in the Bible, but not to enter God's presence. It doesn't bring us near to God in the way that Jesus does. But probably the one that's closest to most of us this morning would be meeting. Meeting to be in God's presence, bring us close to God. Uh, I remember a church back in Lancaster that uh, it had been painted over, but you could still read the sign over the top of the doors. And it's, uh, it was a, a quote from Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That was sort of above the door. And if the sun, the sun shone brightly, you could sort of see it still uh, behind the white paint. But do you see the implication of what that was saying, putting that over the door? Entering church equals entering his presence. You see that coming in and meeting together. And we can see where that's from, can't we? It's not a completely strange idea. So in Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So there is a sense as we gather that Jesus is among us. He's here this morning. But it's not as though the act of meeting brings us into God's presence. Actually, that's what Jesus does. Because Jesus is our mediator. That's what we see as it talks about him as our high priest. He is the one who brings us to God. He is the one who presents us to him. So Jesus needs to be that mediator that can do that, that can actually act between us two and bring us into God's presence. Which either means he needs to be totally neutral, if you think about it as a mediator, as they bring people together, or equally bound to both sides. As we approach God. I suppose the closest illustration. You could go with that, the idea of a mediator at, at my work. But he wasn't a very good one. Think about it like a parent with two children. They can act as a mediator can't they? Because actually they love both children. They've got a, a, a foot in both camps if you like. And so Christ is the one who can bring us to God. Christ is our mediator. Because he is God. He can act for God. But he's also man and can act for man. He has a foot in both camps. He's uniquely qualified to be our mediator and to bring us to God. There is a man stood in the presence of God, Jesus Christ. And that's why we can draw near with God to God with confidence. Because this passage shows us just what a good mediator Christ is. He's not like my rubbish one. He's actually a a really good mediator. So we can draw near with confidence because Christ was ordained. Did you see that as we read through in verse 1? He's appointed to act on behalf of men. Uh, And then later on it talks about him not taking the honour on himself. So as Jesus brings us to God, he's not a self-appointed mediator. Have you ever been in one of those situations where somebody sort of appointed themselves a mediator between you and someone else? I've put a proverb there since we're doing proverbs in life groups. Proverbs 26, 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. 
<laughs> now, I must admit, I've, I've never done that. <laughs> I wouldn't like to try with Bonnie. Uh, <laughs> but we know those sorts of situations, don't we, where you're might be in a heated discussion with someone and someone else steps in the middle and decides they're going to sort it out. So it's like grabbing a dog by the ears. It's not a good idea. You can't just appoint yourself a mediator between people. But Jesus is not some third party here. He was appointed by God. That's why it's making this point. He's God approved. So it's not just some random meddler that we could have no confidence in and just find annoying. Jesus actually comes as God's representative. If he was just our representative, if he was just a man, we could have no confidence. Because we'd just be doing the same thing, appointing our own. After all, why should God accept our choice of a mediator, especially since we're the ones that have offended him? So Jesus didn't put himself in the role, God the Father did. And those two quotes we have there from the Psalms just go to show it. He was appointed as the Son of God, the universal King, high over all. We've already seen that back in chapter 1. But he was also appointed priest by God. And we see that that psalm points to us a supernatural priest, don't we? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who could be a priest forever? And he was not in Aaron's order, which had so many flaws. He was in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to get into that this morning because that's going to be covered in quite a lot of depth. But if you want to know what that means, just read ahead and find out for yourself. But it's important to see that he is in an official role. He's not self-appointed. He didn't exalt himself up so that God would have to humble him. No, God raised him up to be our high priest. So he was uh, ordained, he was appointed, but he was also obedient. We see that in verses 7 to 10, that last little section. In this section, we're transported back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus pleads with his father. That's what he's talking about with the cries and supplications. So put again, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's that picture of him praying to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you notice there as well, in verse 7, He's praying to the one who is able to save him from death. And it says he's heard. Which is a little bit strange, isn't it? Two things are a bit strange about it. One is that, well, Jesus died, didn't he? If Jesus was offering up his prayers to the one who could save him and was heard, you'd sort of expect him not to die, wouldn't you? But God didn't save Jesus from dying. He did save him from death. Death could not hold him. So he he was heard, but it didn't stop the act of dying. It was after, when he was risen from the dead, that we see this fulfilled. The second thing that's a little bit strange about that verse is that it says he was heard because of his reverence. See that? He was heard because of his reverence. You'd think, wouldn't you, that, well, God would hear him because he's his son. That would be the answer, you know, well, he's God. But actually, his humanity is being emphasised, isn't it? As our high priest. Here he models what it is to be human. He calls out to God as, as the perfect human being, as the obedient human being, and is heard. He models what humanity should be. So if Jesus was God's choice to be our mediator, well, he should be our choice as well. 
This is a man who stands before God, prays, and is heard. If we tried that in our own righteousness, to stand before God, we would be turned away. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, isn't it? We don't come in our own name. You know, this this says Chris. We say, this says Christ, don't we? In Jesus' name. Here is a man who is heard by God. We should want him as our mediator. And it was, his reverence wasn't just an action, attitude, sorry, attitude, was it? It led to action. We see there in those verses that he suffered. That's verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned what it was to obey. Contrary to all his desires for self-preservation, he went to the cross. He trusted his father. And again, people have struggled with this. How could Jesus learn something? But it's focusing again on his humanity. He trusted his father, just as we should. In fact, really all of this section here is a, a picture of what it looks like to be perfectly human. Not supermen. Do you notice here it's not saying that he just went and did it all by himself. But men and women who are humbly dependent on their father. That's what perfect humanity looks like. Trusting God even in the midst of trials. Trusting God even in the midst of suffering. Not safe from dying, but ultimately safe from death. That's our condition too, isn't it? These Christians that he's writing to might go on to die for their faith. But they'll still be safe from death, as Christ was. So Christ is able to bring us near to God. He is our mediator, the one who is ordained and obedient. But why draw near? What does it look like to draw near? Well, we're told, aren't we, uh, back in verse uh, 16, we draw near uh, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We draw near to God to receive mercy. We draw near to receive well-timed grace. That's literally what it, it means. It means that as we approach God, because of Christ being our mediator, we can be confident to receive mercy from God. Because it's not based on us, it's based on him. Our merciful high priest. So it means this for us this morning. It means that every day can be a fresh start with God. Mercy wipes the slate clean. Christ's mercy breaks the slate and throws it in the bin. It means this. It means that at your spiritually lowest, you can still approach God in prayer for mercy. Even when you're feeling at your worst, even when you've made those stupid mistakes, even when you feel weak, you can still go to God. Because it doesn't depend on your state. It depends on Christ. So it doesn't matter in one sense if you spent your afternoon in pornography or in prayer, in booze or in your Bible. God will still hear your pleas for mercy and grace. Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying those things don't matter. Hebrews is going to have some stern warning for us if we want to continue in those sorts of lifestyles. But what I'm saying is that our confidence before God should never be based on our own righteousness, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Our confidence should always be the fact that Jesus is our merciful high priest. And he is able to wipe our slate clean, however sinful we have been. 
And he is always the place that we should go when we need help. It's sad, isn't it, that often when we're feeling at our weakest, when we're feeling at our lowest, we find it hard and hardest to go to God, don't we? But that's exactly where we need to go. So the author's plea is this, turn to Christ in your hour of need. When you've messed up, don't shy away from your source of grace. Whether it's denying that you know him or deliberately sinning, go to the throne of mercy. Whether you're tempted to gossip or go back to the world, go to the throne of grace to get you through. Because no one shows mercy like Jesus shows mercy. No one shows grace like Jesus shows grace. And it's not just a little mercy. Do you see there in verse 9? And being made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's not just a little mercy. It's not just a little bit of saving. It's eternal salvation that he offers. So what must we do? Well, we keep obeying as we can, can't we? It talks about us there. Salvation to all those who obey him. But it's not a mechanical obedience as though we've just got a set of rules. It's a faith-based obedience. We've seen in Hebrews, haven't we, how those two things mesh together. It's not perfect obedience because that's why we need help. Because we're weak. We fail. But an attitude of trust and obedience. We can trust him. Notice here it's Christ that we're to obey, trustingly. We can rely on him. Because he is our mediator, our great high priest. And he's greater than that mediator in my old office, certainly. But he's greater than Aaron, the original high priest. He's greater than all. He's worthy of all our trust and praise. He should be the person that we go to in our hour of need. So let's put our trust in him. Turn to him in our time of need and cling to him when life throws at us all it can. Let's pray.